W.H. Auden hated this poem. He called it the most dishonest he had ever written, and eventually had it excluded from collections of his poetry. And yet it quickly became one of his most popular poems. And after the attacks of September 11th, it was published in several national newspapers and widely discussed. This might seem to be a strange result, given that the poem is not a call to arms, but an invitation to self-critique. What explains the enduring appeal of Auden's September 1st, 1939? Was he right to repudiate it? These are the questions for today's discussion. This is Wes Alwyn. And this is Aaron Olanik. And you're listening to Subtext. So before we begin, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for The Partially Examined Life, we won't always be here and not all episodes of Subtext will appear here. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice, either by going to subtextpodcast.com slash subscribe or by searching for us within the app itself. Okay, so in our last episode, we discussed Auden's Musée de Beaux-Arts. And I had originally suggested to you that we discuss September 1st, 1939. And then I thought, well, maybe we should do two poems for the episode, as usual, thinking that we're going to actually fit two poems into an episode, which is, which is <laughs> delusional, you know, because poems are short. So we got to, <laughs> you know, um, if you count the number of words and compare that to what's in Hedda Gabler's, surely, <laughs> Our episode on, surely yep. we can fit <laughs> two poems into an episode so then it turned into two episodes one on, e- on each poem which i'm really glad that we did because it's allowed me to spend some time with auden and not as much as i wanted i could continue to do this we could spend another month on auden at least but i'm glad we're we're at least doing two episodes for now on on auden the reason why I'd initially suggested this poem, September 1st, 1939, is, is really it was my introduction to Auden after, it, it's a poem that circulated widely after 9-11. I was really taken by it as soon as I saw it. The first stanza was immediately gripping to me. And some of that is just the, because it's evocative, you know, after 9-11, there are things that just resonate that, that we'll discuss, but... Um, you know, everything from description of skyscrapers to being in New York to the the, the sense of doom and the, the stench of death in the air, those sorts of things. But also just because it begins with a kind of sense of disgust and political urgency that in my experience, you don't often see in a good poem. I think mm-hmm. there's a sort of tension between the political stance in poetry. And it's one of the reasons I think that, that Auden ended up hating this poem and uh, having his editor excluded from collections and, and calling it rubbish and things like that. I just wanted to include the quote that he, that he said about September 1st and his poem, Spain. He called them trash, which he is ashamed to have written. Yeah. So everyone wishes they could write this kind of trash. But right, uh, right. I, I think, you know, he, he used this, Political posturing, maybe, that he he later became uncomfortable with. I guess he had three sort of phases in his intellectual development, as I think Mendelssohn calls them, like the the sort of the Freudian, the Marxist, and then finally the Christian. I think that the the Marxist revolutionary vision of of the world that he was working in at this time was not, or at least later he said, it wasn't one that he ever really agreed with, but which he used as a sort of, you know... Um, theory of the world to benefit his poetry. And he thought that it was, it was useful 
these types of myths, as he would call them, useful to poets that a, a sort of unifying theory of the world or a political theory of the world maybe was even necessary to craft a legacy as a poet, as a lasting poet. And so I think that kind of later, you know, soured for him or he realized how false that stance was. And so anything that sort of grew out of it or, or was hung on that scaffolding, he later disavowed. But the remarkable thing I think about Auden is that he's so humble, that that sort of Marxism or that idea of a revolution. I mean, that doesn't really that doesn't really come across here because he's not really peddling anything except for dissatisfaction and then a kind of historical background through which to view the kind of the present moment. But he's implicating himself, I think, as much as anyone else. And so it's not a accusation. Or if it is an accusation, it's as much a self-accusation as accusing the world. This is what I think people get wrong about political poetry is that it can veer into the propagandistic. And he's really not doing that at all here. Um, it's something like much grander and more, more noble. So though I understand his desire later to sort of retract this or expunge it from the record. Um, I think that that's like just even more an example of his humility and his desire to be truthful. Yeah. One of the things which I know you, you just told me before we got on the recording that you had, you had read this quite a while ago, Joseph Brodsky wrote a 50 something page line by line analysis of this poem, which I only found over the weekend just cause I was poking around in the secondary literature. And it is, it's really one of the best pieces of criticism I've ever read. Um, and so I can't recommend that highly enough to listeners. And I'm actually going to put together a little secondary reading packet that I'll put up on Patreon for, for people that people can read this and some of the other essays that I, that either of us read in, in preparation for this. Um, but he does, you know, one of the points he does make is about, I, th- I think he calls Auden like the most humble poet <laughs> ever. Um, no. <laughs> it's a sort of grandiose claim on behalf of <laughs> Auden's humility. And, you know, part of that, as you, as you just mentioned, is there's that element of self-accusation. So I don't, yeah, the, the disgust that begins the poem, I think it would be hard to get away with that strong a political sentiment if it were just directed towards whatever political opponents you've imagined um, or, or conjured up. I mean, so whether it's Hitler or capitalism or whatever you want to call it, there's an element of disgust for humanity in general, in a sense that we're all culpable in some sense, which is an interesting, you know, it's a strange thing to be immediately so resonant after nine 11 where, you know, there is a temptation to feel militaristic and to, want to go to war, which of course is the thing that, that won out. But there, I think there's a significant undercurrent of the desire to avoid that posture in ourselves, avoid that reaction, that vengeful and jingoistic reaction to 9-11. And this poem captured that feeling. Oh, and I, I did want to read one more. We talked about Auden hating the poem. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't think he gives a long explanation of his dislike of the poem. I think he calls it dishonest. What did, what did he call it? Trash or trash? Yes. Trash. That's a good <laughs> epithet for it. <laughs> um, so there is a letter in which he said the reason (parentheses artistic, unparenthesis) I left England was precisely to stop me from writing poems like September first, nineteen thirty-nine the most dishonest poem I have ever written. It's interesting he's using that word dishonest when the low dishonest decade is uh, Mm -hmm. one of the most memorable lines in the poem. I'm neither a politician nor a novelist. Reportage is not my business, Auden wrote in early 1940. 
So there's an interesting reaction here to the possibility of the use of poetry or the use of the arts more generally to make political statements. I mean, I, I think it, and, and many others, of course, and this is why it's persistent, you know, why it's survived. It's such, I think it's a brilliant poem. And one of the gripping things about it is sort of the first stanza in which it's as if a reporter is, is writing, right? But anyway, why don't we, why don't we pause and, and read it? Should we talk about his dislike of the last line of the penultimate stanza? Oh, yeah, yeah. Since we're talking about the dislike. Yeah. yeah. Right. So we got to correct my assertion that he doesn't really explain it because this is the one, this is a line that he tries to change. Yeah. So he, he particularly disliked the last line of the penultimate stanza, we must love one another or die, uh, which is obviously one of the most famous lines from the poem. And he felt that it was dishonest or just plain wrong because obviously we're all going to die anyway (laughs) and then he changed it to we must love one another and die but i guess that wasn't enough of a change to satisfy him and then he just completely excised the poem from his collected but you know so that was i think the official reason that he gave um which seems like not a very good reason i guess and i think that in the Brodsky essay, the, one of the things I really remember from that was that he said that the meaning of the line is actually, we must love one another or kill. Right. I think that's, right. that's the way he, he puts does it. Say that, yeah. And that the, or the last stanza is kind of a rebuke of that sentiment anyway. You know, he keeps going to these uh, high points, you know, of pitch and then kind of like reeling it back in a little bit and then sort mm-hmm. of casting his line out far again and then sort of reeling it back in. And so since it's the last line of the penultimate stanza, it's not as if it were the last line of the poem. Um, so in the last stanza, he kind of reels it back in a little bit. And so there's a sort of apologia for it, like built into the poem, but um, still it wasn't enough for him. And that was anyway, the official reason that he gave for being dissatisfied with it in in public, I guess. Yeah. You know, maybe it's because it sounds too sentimental to him. The, the, the idea that we're going to die anyway doesn't really make sense, right? I mean, the question is when we die and how we die, right? And then I think Brodsky's idea right. about killing, of course, is precisely the point. We must love one another or die at violent deaths at each other's hands, essentially. Maybe it sounds platitudinous or too obvious, but in the context of the poem, it doesn't, of course. It's one of the points of high pitch, but there's enough sobriety in the poem at various points as well to weigh it down and not make it seem just like a platitude. Mm. All right. You want to read it? Sure. We should also just say quickly, obviously, September 1st, 1939 is the day that the Germans invaded Poland and started World War II. Okay. September 1st, 1939. I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid, as the clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decade. Waves of anger and fear circulate over the bright and darkened lands of the earth, obsessing our private lives. The unmentionable odor of death offends the September night. Accurate scholarship can unearth the whole offense from Luther until now that has driven a culture mad. Find what occurred at Lintz, what huge imago made a psychopathic god. I and the public know what all schoolchildren learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Exiled Thucydides knew all that a speech can say about democracy and what dictators do, the elderly rubbish they talk to an apathetic grave. Analyzed all in his book, the enlightenment driven away, the habit-forming pain, mismanagement and grief. We must suffer them all again. Into this neutral air, where blind skyscrapers use their full height to proclaim the strength of collective man, each language pours its vain competitive excuse. But who can live for long in an euphoric dream? Out of the mirror they stare, imperialism's face and the international wrong. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. 
The lights must never go out. The music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home, lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. The windiest militant trash important persons shout is not so crude as our wish. What Mad Nijinsky wrote about Diaghilev is true of the normal heart, for the error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have, not universal love, but to be loved alone. From the conservative dark into the ethical life, the dense commuters come, repeating their morning vow, I will be true to the wife, I'll concentrate more on my work. And helpless governors wake to resume their compulsory game. Who can release them now? Who can reach the deaf? Who can speak for the dumb? All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie. The romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street and the lie of authority, whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state, and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another or die. Defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies. Yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them, of eros and of dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. Very nice. I can't help but hear that ironic points of light line in the voice of uh, Bush the first. <laughs> George Bush, <laughs> yes. Ironic points of light. Um, yeah. Or what about the line about no new taxes? Okay. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird that he put that in there about the taxes, but um, <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he really could <laughs> see the future. But the way it begins, you know, as Brodsky points out, I was trying to put my finger on why it was so affecting and you know, something about locating himself in a in a dive and using a you know specific street number but brodsky points out that this kind of positions himself as a reporter the title of the poem is a date and then it's like i sit in one of the dives it's like i'm reporting here from a dive bar in new york city coming to you live coming to you live yeah and then there's an immediate switch from that neutral reportorial is that a word the neutral journalistic mode straight into expression of raw emotion and then discussed. Yeah, the um, 52nd Street area I know was a, was like the jazz center of the world at that time. I suppose after Uncertain and Afraid, what catches my eye are um, the clever hopes of a low dishonest decade. So these clever hopes meaning maybe of of Spain or clever hopes for peace or wasn't England um, sort of assuring Poland that they would not come under the sway of the Germans also? The invasion of Poland immediately brings England into the war. So, but, but before that, there are attempts to appease Hitler, and the previous decade sees the rise of fascism. But during that time, there's kind of a, well, everything is going to be all right type of attitude. There's hopes that appeasement will work. I guess Spain, too, I think of as being like the anti-fascist yeah. thing that fell. Yeah, so the, the fascists basically took over and... In Spain, I think those are the two things that, that loom large, the, the appeasement of Hitler and the, the attempt to kind of stay out of things as, as he's mobilizing and then the rise of fascism in Spain. The cleverness of how these stanzas are, are put together, too, is, is really great. Like, the lines are almost 
onomatopoetic in a way, like the clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decade. It's sort of like a staircase going down that line, that deflating effect that none of these hopes have come to fruition. And so the the stresses in low, dishonest decade sink sort of lower and lower. It's really clever. I should just say, too, that this is a sort of iambic trimeter, I guess. And and these are 11 line stanzas. There are nine stanzas total. Oh, which means I just figured out that there are 99 lines in this poem. Hmm. And yeah, in a really irregular rhyme scheme. So like dives isn't rhymed until private lives, three lines before the end of the stanza. So it's really irregular. And then waves of of anger and fear circulate over the bright and darkened lands of the earth. Maybe it's just because we, we recently did um, that episode on Yeats, but this makes me think of Yeats. And of course, it does have some parallels to a poem that we didn't cover, but which is a great Yeats poem, um, Easter 1916, which has sort of the same look on the page. I think that's also kind of an iambic trimeter. Commentators will note that it, this, this poem, in a way, seems inspired by, by Yeats's poem. There's a lot of similarities. You know, I think he's referring to radio waves, which took mm-hmm. me a while to figure out, actually. Part of what's going on here is the, so these anger and fear are obsessing our private lives. So I think there's something important here about the fact that the the use of technology here to... Yeah, to sort of invade us or, yeah. I think there's a, a really important balance that Auden strikes throughout this whole poem between sort of like the public mode and the private mode. And I think he sort of implies that that balance that is supposed to hold where, you know, sort of public things or newsy things are are kept in one sphere and one's private life remains sort of sacrosanct. Those wires have been crossed. I think, Wes, you're getting at this, that this is very, this seems very current. Yes, exactly. Like the idea is that maybe our private thoughts shouldn't be upset by these big public pieces of news, especially when, you know, he's writing safely sort of from America. He has just left England and now they're in a war and um, he's certainly upset about it, but he's also lucky to be at, at some remove from England. And so the idea that we are so affected by things that are happening far away from us, it's just obviously gets more and more true as the 20th century goes on and we're all living in a global society. Yeah. You know, I had this in my notes about it's kind of a, a complaint that we hear over and over again. Now the complaint is about fake news and social media and, and the web and all that stuff. But there are different iterations of the same sort of complaint. I mean, even even Thoreau and Walden, right, complains about the, the telegram yeah. and, and <laughs> the way news has in, invaded people's private lives. And I'm sure somewhere in Pompeii, they've found graffiti complaining about <laughs> the ways in which, uh, yeah, the news, they can think of nothing but the news. But anyway, yeah. yeah, And I, and I think also the, you know, this mention of bright and darkened lands, I really love that because it's, it's also seems like a reference to the role of, of technology. I, I think of kind of an aerial view of the earth or a country as you're, as you're flying over it, where you see, right. And all the brightness from, from well-lit cities and then you see the patches of darkness but in in this case the darkness is also the impending war so i think there's a bit here about you know the cleverness extends not just it it's not just about appeasement but it's also about human cleverness in general including technological cleverness and the ways Hmm. in which that sort of cleverness is is not a match for our darker natures clever hopes is such a wonderful phrase too because it's a juxtaposition of two words that you might not necessarily think 
go together, you want to unpack that, what makes the hopes in particular clever, right? And they have something to do with liberal aspirations, you know, political aspirations, a belief in the inevitable triumph of liberal democracy, for instance, but also in the uh, in progress in general, including technological progress, I think. And, and you know, skyscrapers, the things that, that are surrounding him in New York. Right. Yeah. So then we have the, the unmentionable odor of death, but he mentions it, um, offends the September night. And then, then there's a kind of a turn and each one of these stanzas is so different and each one kind of comes in at a different angle. Um, Let me just say something about the odor of that offends the September 9th, because yeah, the night, this is one of the things that I think was so resonant after 9-11. As you know, I was close to the South Tower when it fell and I had to work right next to the aftermath of you know, so that there's a big burning pit and there's this smell that you would never forget and and really it was the smell of pulverized concrete for the most part but there was the knowledge that that pulverized concrete included human remains and it was everywhere and you know when i went into my workstation when i finally got was able to go back to work everything was covered in that dust and of course when the south tower fell i i had been covered in that cloud of dust as well it's something that you never forget, that odor. But if, of course, for him, this is sort of a, the unmentionable odor of, of death. It's, he's nowhere near the odor of death at this point, right? It's still far away, and yet he's making it viscerally present. Yeah, well, I think also we read this through the prism of Auschwitz-Birkenau, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, none of those things are, are exist yet either. So he's sort of, I don't know, he's he's very visionary here not not of course that there haven't already been casualties because of uh, german fascism but this odor of death like you say i think it you know it takes on a much much greater significance when we think of the burning flesh of september 11th or you know much closer to 39 the another situation where the you know the odor of burning flesh hung over places it's just remarkable yeah it's kind of a prophetic element of it i'm, I'm reminded now actually of watership down in which I forget the little prophet visionary rabbit, but sees blood. Actually, it's it's you you have the sensations of the thing that is is coming in the future. You have them viscerally in the mm. in the present, and that's the that's the means of prophecy. These very basic sensory experiences. I associate September with fall. I guess fall officially begins what September twenty first. So it's the beginning of fall. It's the beginning of the the season of dying and yet normally you know i think we'd normally have positive or or calming associations with it but here it's as if you know a crisp autumn air is has become something else yeah so then between the the end of the first stanza and the beginning of the second there's there's kind of a turn there's a a tonal shift which happens a lot i think between stanzas throughout the poem he he's sort of coming at his subject from all different angles. And so at the beginning of the second stanza, he says, accurate scholarship can unearth the whole offense from Luther until now that has driven a culture mad. And so there, there's a, there's some kind of like um, detached, um, uh, he's now kind of looking at it from a from a remove maybe, whereas he was considering everything from this this dive. Now he's sort of gone maybe a little bit of the, the sort of pedantic route here and looking yeah. at it uh, through a historical lens maybe. And so what is the offense, I suppose, that has driven the culture mad? 
is the question. And he goes to he goes to Linz, which um, I know is the the town where Hitler grew up. Mm-hmm. So he he sort of goes to Hitler's sort of upbringing, um, but he also harkens back to Luther, obviously another another German, and and maybe the idea that that Luther was sort of the the beginning of this trouble for. For Germany, the the beginning of the kind of the tear in in uh, the the common fabric that had united you know Europe up until that point, maybe the the beginning of the atomization of of society with you know no longer having everyone under the same church banner, mm-hmm. and so he he sort of goes goes back to there as as sort of the the beginning of something that would then create Hitler, which is interesting, and I can imagine that Lutherans are a fan of that. Um. <laughs> he's rejecting these sorts of explanations as yeah he, he's dismissing them as you know he's scoffing at them right so we can yes we can mm-hmm. give these historical explanations we can give these causal explanations of what led up to this point we can psychoanalyze hitler and right what huge imago made a psychopathic god and imago is a an idealized image of a of a parent but it's actually very simple, he says. You know, you can give those explanations if you want, but the truth is actually very simple. It's something that you don't need to be a scholar to know. You'd know it if you're a, a child, which is that those to whom evil is done do evil in return, which seems to be a reference to the Versailles Treaty and to what a horrible circumstance Germany had been in after World War One, which Auden had actually experienced firsthand. He had been in um, Berlin for a while in the thirties for people who are might be initially enamored by the poem when they figure out <laughs> what it's about, when it seems to be uh, self-blaming and, and it's not just about the condemnation of, of Hitler and certain types of people or fascism or, or, or whatever. It's a condemnation of um, our own impulses, human impulses more generally. And, and here you don't have to search very far according to him to understand what's going on. You just look at the desire for revenge or in Germany's case, humiliation and the desire to regain status or something like that. Of course, I think after the whole course of the war, he might've had a different opinion, right? Hitler becomes, and the atrocities of the Nazis become harder and harder to explain as time goes on because they become Hmm. so much more horrific they're already bad at this point, but they, of course, become horrific and unimaginable and, and lots and lots has been written on how human beings could treat each other this way, how the Holocaust could happen. Something I was, by the way, was always fascinated with as a as a child. My grandfather was a Marine and was in Germany during World War II, but decided he was actually had some German heritage and decided to stay there with my grandmother after the war. And they lived there and they integrated themselves fluent in German and when they did come back to the States, finally, you know, my grandfather had a lot of books on German history and the history of the Third Reich. And uh, it's something as a kid I became kind of obsessed with as a kind of moral, ethical focal point, as in how do we explain this and how do we stop it from ever happening again? That seems like the primary political imperative for me is to prevent the circumstances under which human beings will do this sort of thing to each other. Yeah, I like what... What he manages to do here, which is to kind of, like you say, to come at it from this historical angle and then and then go into what I assume is kind of like a Freudian reading of Hitler. Well, it's more, it's psychoanalytic in general. You could call it Freudian, but I think the reference to an imago is more of a reference to Jung. Mm-hmm. Yeah, specifically, and, and Auden was into psychoanalysis, right? And 
of course, he has a great poem, which is a tribute to Freud. And so he's not condemning psychoanalytic explanation per se, but in this moment of spleen, he's saying, fuck all that, fuck all these complicated explanations. This is just uh, something a school child can figure out. Should we go to the third stanza? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, then I think Auden is making a, a strong parallel between himself and Thucydides at the beginning of the third stanza. I think they're both sort of exiles, though Auden is in a kind of a self-imposed exile. So Thucydides, he wrote about the Peloponnesian War, and he wrote that during the war, he was exiled pretty early on for something that was not his fault. Didn't he like not arrive somewhere yes, in time? Yes, he didn't. He, <laughs> or something but it wasn't like his fault. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't arrive in time uh, before a certain city ended up surrendering. And so his punishment was to be exiled. And then he actually got to hang out with people on the other side of things. So his with with non Athenians with enemies of the Athenians. So, you know, as someone who'd been exiled. And so he gives a famously neutral, quote unquote, objective or realistic account of a non nonpartisan account of the war. Yeah, Thucydides, obviously, in, in his history of the Peloponnesian War, famously transcribed or even more famously, maybe like made up Pericles' funeral oration, um, where he elegizes, eulogizes rather, the Athenian war dead and then and sort of like all of Athens itself, I suppose. And so, you know, maybe Auden is, is trying to say this is what he himself is also uh, trying to do with with September 1st and, and sort of eulogizing the end of an empire in a way. But then he does this, again, this this really humble thing, which is really kind of confusing to me, which is then he's, he sort of takes down Pericles and Thucydides and thus sort of himself by, I think he sort of collapses or conflates the funeral oration or the writings of, of Pericles or Thucydides with the dictators' speeches that they give, you know, the, their fascistic speeches, the rubbish they talk to an apathetic grave. And so he sort of, the whole thing becomes very deflated, that this grand speech is actually just being spoken to, uh, you know, a bunch of people who who don't care because they're dead. And it's rubbish. It has no effect, ultimately. It's it's futile. Well, yeah. So what Pericles is doing in that speech, and I went in, I, in preparation for this, I read... It's been a long, long time since I was like 19 or something since I looked at Thucydides and I had never thought sufficiently about what's going on in Thucydides and specifically what's going on with the Pericles funeral oration. But part of what Pericles is doing right in that speech is he is, first of all, it's kind of a ritual. It's kind of a ritualized thing that they do to give a eulogy to the war debt at a certain point and the, and the war is not over. So what he's also doing is he he's really riling people up to give them the will to continue with the war and to succeed, to be victorious, which he confidently tells them they will be because Athens is such a great place. So he pivots from the beginning and saying, I'm going to deviate here from talking about how great all these warriors are in particular, and I'm going to talk about Athens. So that's one of the famous things he does. And he has a great way of putting it, which is that he's, you know, the reputations of many brave men should not be imperiled by the mouth of a single individual as if he, he can't really do justice to the people who have died. But what he does with Athens is he talks about how fair its laws are. There's equal justice under the law. In fact, our equal justice under the law phrase arguably comes from the speech. They welcome foreigners. They're open, even if it means that people can spy on them and 
So it's a eulogy to Athenian liberal values and the idea that they will succeed because of those liberal values. You know, even it says at one point, we don't have to, tr- you know, Spartans, because they're at war with the Spartans, essentially, the, the Spartans train their youth, they go through all these, you know, all this severe training when they're younger, and we don't have to do that. You know, what we have is, it's like, we believe in science, you know, it's that sort of thing. We believe in, in, in culture. We're the cultured ones. We're the enlightened ones. And a lot of the upshot of Thucydides' book is how all of that doesn't matter, right? All of the sophistication of the Athenians doesn't end up mattering, all their planning. And they, they do some brutal things, by the way. You know, some really, they commit some terrible war crimes, essentially, despite their conception of themselves as being enlightened and, and just and um, merciful and, and so on. It, it all comes to, you know, it all comes to a bad end for the Athenians. They lose the war. And uh, Athens, you know, kind of briefly regains its, its glory again after uh, after a period, but it never really will have its empire again. So, you know, when he says all that speech can say about democracy, it's in part, you know, Pericles is eulogizing democracy. He's praising democracy and he's using it to rile people up for the cause of war. So when I think when he talks about the enlightenment driven away, the habit forming pain, mismanagement and grief, it's a competing model of education which also has its roots in ancient Greek philosophy in which you have to, it's not enough to be rational. It's not enough to be enlightened or cultured. You have to learn by suffering or you have to learn by being habituated. And that means, unfortunately, that there's no easy transmission of learning from one generation to another because it has to be directly experienced. So, you know, it's, it suggests that we're not as capable of learning from history as we might have thought as well. Yeah, so it's a really, it's a it's kind of brilliant invocation of of Thucydides to say that, and I, and I think he's reacting to probably some of the jingoistic, you know, as people are getting riled up for war, he's probably what's going on is you're hearing a lot about how Europe is now going to defend democracy against the Hun, right? So all the talk of democracy and liberal values is going to be turned, as it was for Pericles, to the purpose of getting people ready for war. I sort of disagreed a little bit with with what you said about the Enlightenment, just that within the, the seeds of Enlightenment contain its own destruction, right? I mean, it's not just about suffering. It's about the idea that if you believe that man is perfectible, the progress of self-improvement can lead you anywhere and and can end in some sort of, you know, utopian vision that that is always going to go awry. I read the word enlightenment as like a reference to the enlightenment. And obviously, the enlightenment and the neoclassical era Mm -hmm. are drawing heavily Mm -hmm. upon Athenian society. But um, so just this idea that that man is perfectible, and that the promise of the enlightenment is a, you know, a scientific society in which all all pain is eliminated. And everyone lives in in harmony it's just it's just not possible but it's because you have to understand something i think deeper about human nature's essential imperfectibility or something that all of these promises of the enlightenment are going to end more in fascism than in something like socialism or communism perhaps Mm -hmm. or, or maybe a combination of both yeah i think that's right that's that's very good 
so the neutral air, which I really, I really like, and the the blind skyscrapers, like obviously with the the fact that the air is neutral means that he's in America because we're not in the war yet. But there's also something really, I don't know, like antiseptic about that to me. Something about that neutral air and the blind skyscrapers that make me think of like needles or something, um, and maybe the the skyscrapers are blind because they're like needles with no eye or something. So they're sort of poking into the neutral air and they they proclaim the strength of collective man. So I read this maybe as um, America is not is not immune to this potential downfall of, of Enlightenment era thinking. I mean, you know, that's what allowed America to exist is this it's an Enlightenment exercise, I guess you could say, um, or an Enlightenment uh, idea. So the neutrality too, it's a nice pivot off Thucydides, who was famous for his neutrality and the more general idea of, yeah, of a kind of enlightenment neutrality in the sense of scientific objectivity and, and all that stuff. And the neutrality associated with, again, liberal, liberal values, the supposed neutrality. And he's going to say, that's all bullshit (laughs) is into that neutral air, that supposedly neutral air. What do you get? You have these skyscrapers, which are in and of themselves. I, I was going to say piece of propaganda, but you know maybe maybe the better better word is they are kind of physical agitprop. They say something, and they are expressions of the grandiose pretensions of humanity. So they're they're an expression of sort of human glory. Look what we can do. Look what we can accomplish. And you could say. You could attribute that to our collective efforts, right? So you could think of it as a tribute to the strength of collective men as here's what we can do when we cooperate, when we work together. And that seems well and good, except part of what's going on here is that nationalism has its seeds in those sentiments, right? We are proud of ourselves or proud of ourselves for being these clever human beings, but then we might be proud of ourselves for being Americans with a great democracy, or we might be proud of ourselves for being Germans with this great cultural tradition for being a Volk. And uh, that can become, of course, a big problem. So we can see the seeds of aggression and violence in our self-congratulation for having transcended such things, you know, whether it's uh, Pericles talking about how great Athens is for its openness, um, or whether it's us congratulating ourselves for our democratic tendencies. And that, that idea of self-congratulation, I think he's saying toward the end of the stanza, it, it lends itself to imperialism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea that if you're better than everyone else, you should, you know, share that beneficence with other countries, um, mm. yeah. <laughs> whether they want it or not. And and too, with the mirror, I think, you know, he can't, uh, Auden is humble, of course, and um, you can't use the word imperialism and be an English person and not have that go both ways. I think he's talking about America here, but I think that, you know, he's also talking about English culture, at least up until World War One, at which point they were significantly weakened. But the idea that maybe these images that we've constructed of the face of imperialism, the, the mirror maybe sits in the Atlantic and America is a, a true child of England in that way. Mm-hmm. In addition to obviously, you know, the idea of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and and German imperialism. So we're all sort of guilty of this. All the major players here, I think, are, are guilty of the same kind of sin. Yeah. I think each language pours its vain competitive excuse. But what do you make of that specifically? That's that's a hard one. What is the competitive excuse? I take it as some sort of reference to capitalistic competition, maybe. 
um, or the competitive spirit involved in business. Yeah. And also with the skyscraper, I mean, at that time, I know there was, at least in, in the 1910s and 20s, there was a great race to see who can build the tallest skyscraper too. So for different countries held the title at different times. I know for a while there, the Eiffel Tower was one of the tallest freestanding structures. And then there was a bunch of cities in America, like Chicago and New York, it was going back and forth. And so so maybe the, the part of the excuse is like, just progress itself. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we want to make these buildings really tall. Why? Because progress. I don't know. And and therefore, like science, you know, is the excuse maybe. Yeah. This just makes me think of the space race, <laughs> which I know is not, you know, he's even predicting the space race in here, I guess. Yeah. So we get again, the sort of at the end of the stanza, this kind of element of self-blame out of the mirror, we they stare, right? So when we think about imperialism and the the international wrong and then and what hitler is doing himself we're looking in a kind of mirror and obviously the the clear michael jackson references are strong <laughs> here so he's of course <laughs> of course it's, he's a prophet in many ways yeah so aaron let's pause for a moment to talk about the sponsor for this episode amazon pharmacy i know that one of the things i hate doing the most is actually going to a brick and mortar pharmacy and standing in line for my prescriptions I know it's such a hassle. It wastes a lot of time and especially in this time of COVID, maybe not the safest option. But your doctor's office can actually send your next prescription straight to Amazon Pharmacy and then Amazon Pharmacy can deliver your medication directly to your door. So you don't have to wait in line anymore or bother going to the pharmacy at all. And you can use your insurance. Amazon Pharmacy works with most insurance plans nationwide. But if you don't have insurance and you're an Amazon Prime member, you can save on prescription costs and get free two-day delivery. You can learn more at Amazon.com slash subtext RX. That's A-M-A-Z-O-N dot com slash subtext RX. Amazon.com slash subtext RX. Well, then that mirror is continued in the in the following stanza, which always reminds me of the the painting bar at the Folie Bergère, <laughs> like the people in, in the mirror sitting at the mm-hmm. bar because he's back in the dive. He's reminding us, I think, here that, you know, he's still in this dive. Mm-hmm. This is my favorite stanza, I think. I just love the stanza so much. We have imperialism and the international wrong, and then he goes he goes back into the, the personal and the private. Again, this sort of, sort of like tension back and forth between public and private or the objective and the subjective, maybe. So he's he's looking at the faces in the bar, and and then there's this sort of strange pair of lines. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. Which um, this is like a desperation for distraction, maybe inherent in people who who frequent these bars. And th- these two lines remind me of like a, a manic carousel or something. Um, the desire to make the bar like home. Is really interesting uh, to to sort of well, in particular, to make a fort into the furniture of home, right? But that the bar is itself a fort, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a sort of conflation of like um, military implication of the bar, but then also like the the public place of the bar becoming the place maybe that you avoid home with, but then you also have to sort of delude yourself into into thinking that it is home and to become comfortable in it. Uh, it has to assume some of the furniture of home. So the, the idea that extended then to the military metaphor is that one becomes comfortable with war or or that one makes war a, a hospitable environment for oneself if you need it to be. Uh, I'm not, I'm not I, really I think sure. part of it is so he's connecting militarism to 
people just going about their average day and distracting themselves mm-hmm. with entertainment and the simple pleasures of life. So bar, yeah, I think you're spot on with the idea of the bar is furnished to be homey, ideally, right? At least if it's an English pub, right? And you're, and you're going to spend a lot of time there. And it's sort of a, uh, that's that this is an American place though. So I forgot about that. So I don't know if a dive bar is, is going to be all that homey, but anyway, so it's a home away from home, I think at the very least, or that's its self conception, but to call it a fort. Wow. That's, that's pretty amazing, right? The idea is that it's actually in some kind of symbolic way, what people are, are doing there is they're being soldiers, Maybe it's soldiers in their daily life, right? They're going to work. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're obeying rules. They're in a sort of routine. So it's just an amazing juxtaposition to talk about the ways in which we distract ourselves with various entertainments as as a kind of military routine. Um, And of course, he's talking about, you know, military, the way political disaster can kind of flourish because people ignore it and they they, they kind of abdicate their roles as citizens by distracting themselves with entertainments. So this is a nice exaggeration for poetic effect of that very idea where it's not just, oh, I'm distracted. So injustice flourishes. It's I am I am a member of an army of the people who distract themselves with with leisure. So the place that seems like it's just a home away from home and it's nice and it's innocent and it's, it's really a fort. And where, where are we really? We're in this haunted wood. Now, now we get a kind of fairy tale feeling, right? This turn to <laughs> mm. who are we? Are we Hansel and Gretel? What's going on here? <laughs> the idea too, that like, you know, we're, we're afraid of the night. So we have these distractions that, that keep us going. This is maybe especially true of, of American society or the city places like New York that never sleep, that they're, you don't, you never have to um, confront yourself or be alone with yourself. The, the lights never have to go out. And so you can, you can sort of go from public space to public space, sort of convincing yourself that you're home and never having to confront your own dissatisfactions or your own moral failings. And he's, you know, by being a, a denizen at one of these bars is, is extending that of course to himself. Yeah. So we're, we're deluding ourselves, you know, lest we should see where we are. So where are we really, right? The bar is kind of an illusion, which will, which will fall away now. And we're no longer in a fort, but we're in a haunted wood. So where are we really? We are, we're not people at the bar, just distracting ourselves anymore and we're no longer soldiers, but now we're children at our core who are afraid. You know, what does it mean to say that we have never been happy or, or good as part of the illusion that we're setting up in our entertainments in our leisure, right? Is, oh, this is, you know, this is what happiness means. And this is my reward for being a good person, for following rules, for going to work. No, you're not happy. You're not good. You're not getting a reward at bottom. You're uh, someone who's afraid trying to distract yourself from that from that fear and still very uh very childlike so i love that i just uh i love i love the the twists and turns of the stanza yeah and then the um the next stanza is one of my least favorite (laughs) is it because it's there's a hard to pronounce name in it because that's my reason No, it's just, it, it, it gets a little thorny, I think. the I also don't like windiest militant trash. I don't like that very much. Mostly because it reminds me of, of Auden's own, own opinion of this poem. Brodsky says he kind of makes a turn back to English, you know, more British diction here. 
and it's because there's more there's kind of a tension between the britishness and americanness in this in this poem american diction and british diction and this is a turn back Mm. to less plain you know more snobby language in a way i like the the lest we should see where we are and i think that's a little bit Englishy, but um, the militant trash important persons shout um, is not so crude as our wish. Okay, so the, so the worst things that people shout is not is not as bad as we are, <laughs> our own wishes, which is what what Mad Nijinsky wrote about Diaghilev. There, there's actually a, I think a direct quote from Nijinsky's diary in the stanza: "Not universal love, but to be loved alone." I think that's the part that's that's quoted. Just those two lines. So Degelov was was the founder of the Ballet Russe and was the lover of Nijinsky, who was his star dancer for many years. And, and Nijinsky was probably the greatest ballet dancer of all time, along with Anna Pavlova. And so Nijinsky and Degelov were were lovers. And then Nijinsky went sort of like increasingly insane. And one of the ways in which she sort of went insane was he Degelov right f- fired him essentially, right? Yeah, as a as sort of as a as a result of. Nijinsky's erratic, growing erratic I behavior. Okay. Um, and also there was a lot of um, ill will between them with Nijinsky's marriage. Mm. And they had a very messed up sort of <laughs> relationship. But yeah, so, so D. Gale was this, he was like this impresario basically. Um, and, uh, and, and nurtured a lot of uh, ballet talent as founder of the Ballet Russe. And in his diary, I think he was sort of analyzing a couple of famous figures at the time. I think one of them was Woodrow Wilson, and he was saying um, he was comparing these these people to Diaghilev sort of unflatteringly and saying something like what we need is universal love. But what Diaghilev wants is just like one person's particular love. So he's, he's sort of casting Diaghilev, I, I think, if I'm if I'm remembering this correctly, in a sort of a selfish light and that what we should want is the the sort of universal love that that unites all people um, but what most of us want is just for us to be loved, mm-hmm. um, for people to love us selfishly and not for that, that give and take or that um, communality of, of a kind of a Christian all-encompassing love. So this, I think, is the error bred in the bone. And just because he follows it with each woman and each man, I always think of like Adam's rib or something <laughs> um, like this, I, this idea that it, the desire for this kind of specific selfish love is, is the sort of original sin. I know I'm conflating Adam's rib with original sin and I don't mean to do that, but just that, that we want not the love of all, but the love of me, I suppose. And that that's where all of these problems uh, originate yeah we, we can even harken back to those to whom evil is done do evil in return the idea that like a sin against me means that i'm allowed to do you a reciprocal sin yeah. because of that self-love being wounded exactly i think self-love is a is a really good way of putting this right it's not what he explicitly says but it's this is about our narcissism and the word love is kind of polyvalent in the sense that the wanting to be loved alone can include just wanting to be admired alone. And that, and that in a way is kind of the narcissistic position is to not want to be in that vulnerable situation of depending on others and having to give, having to, having to love and risk loss and risk rejection, but to just be invulnerable and to receive and not to give. And so the, where, where the, the receiving of love lends itself to a sense of self-inflation, sense of self-importance, 
but also to it kind of feeds into the concept of status, which is really important to the concept of nationalism, right? So when people want to take vengeance and they want to do evil to those who have done them evil, what is that about, right? What, how can that possibly be satisfying to us? What does vengeance do for us? And what it does is it restores our self-concept. So being harmed, it's more than about the pain caused us. It's about humiliation. It's about the damage it does to our self-image, to our own self-love, and the desire is to restore that through some kind of infliction of pain, which becomes a kind of proof, right? Look what I can do. I am, I'm not the weak, humiliated being that you thought I was, or that you tried to make me into. I'm actually powerful and, and important. This idea of being wanting to be loved alone is extremely important in the kinds of self-aggrandizement at a national level or at a cultural level that he's talked about earlier in the poem, including the self-aggrandizement associated with being enlightened or being a liberal democracy and, and so on. The use of the phrase loved alone is really interesting because he's like, you know, but to be loved, period, basically, is, is what he means in one way. Mm -hmm. But in, in the other way, by saying, you know, to be loved alone, it's, it's almost like to be left alone. One can't be loved alone. Like that's, you know, the, the implied like self love, the love that you receive or that you can um, give to yourself that doesn't rely on anyone else is obviously sort of part of what he's getting at here. Just one more thing about this stanza. It, it kind of also gets at our inclination to, to say, oh, this is about the fascists, right? This is about the windy militant trash. So fuck the fascists. Let's get rid of the fascists. You know, and this is something you hear in our political discourse all the time. And there's never that reflection on the fact that this is a universal problem, right? We'd be accused and Auden would be accused here of both sidesism or false equivalence which is fine by me, by the way. I'm accused of it all the time, and I'm fine with that because <laughs> I think it's true. I think there's a precise moral equivalence between partisans on each side. and We're called, again, to cast judgment on ourselves and not just cast judgment on others. And part of the problem, part of what leads to war is that inability to cast judgment on ourselves. There are, but lots of people died during World War II at the very moment that they were accused of being a fascist or a communist or and in a way you know being jewish was synonymous with being a being a communist so people use these words as epithets and to connote the, the evil of their fellow human beings and it allowed them it justified atrocities so unless we can admit to our own narcissism and to our own culpability in the horrific ways that human beings generally treat each other then we can easily be lured into what is essentially a fascist frame of mind ourselves. So anyway, sorry to moralize there. I had to get that in. <laughs> yeah. So then in the following stanza, he moves from the, the conservative dark into the ethical, I always want to read that as light, life. <laughs> he, he's, he's describing like commuters on a, on a subway maybe who are, are sort of imploring themselves or sort of like rehearsing their little axioms to try and, uh, you know, get them through a day without cheating on someone or um, being a, being a good person, trying to be a good person. Yeah. Which yeah. we talked about in the bar, the bar stanza a little bit too. So it ties in, but go ahead. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, what do you make of that conservative dark though? That's really interesting. Is conservatism the, the place where these things aren't really tried out or, you know, where there's no 
you know, the light of like uh, a practical use doesn't shine on conservatism in practice. Everyone is uh, embroiled in, in something that by its own nature can't be conservative, maybe. Part of what's interesting here is we might expect from the conservative dark into the ethical light, right? But light is changed to life. And conservative, I'm not sure. When I look at that word, I often think of Freud because Freud used it. And I know Auden is reading a lot of, I mean, I think he read all practically all of Freud and um, was very into that. And for Freud, there's a conservative element to the instincts that he associates with death drive. But this is essentially to say there's some sort of part of us which is inertial, which will just try to, and ironically, it's despite being called you know, death drive, it's associated with what Freud calls the ego instincts and the desire to preserve ourselves and the desire just to keep things going as they are because it's comfortable and it was, it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. And you can associate that with political conservatism, right? The desire to preserve tradition and do things purely because it's what's been done before. And it feels right because of that. And it, it feels good because of that. If you come out of that into the ethical life I think that's a more progressive mode, but ironically, right, the, the dense commuters come. So I like that double entendre on dense as in dumb and dense as in you think of a really packed subway train and they're repeating their morning vows. I will be true to the wife. I'll concentrate more on my work, which sounds like a train, by the way, which sounds like, you know, just kind of da 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 I think I can. I think I can. Strangely enough, reflects that inertial conservatism which it supposedly is trying to escape, right? So the, eth the ethical life brings us out of ourselves. It brings us out of that narcissism with which he's just ended the previous stanza, which one could argue that's the conservative thing, our narcissism. And yet it doesn't seem to escape the powerful force involved in that, right? It just it, suddenly we, we get something that doesn't sound so enlightened and ethical. After all, it's just the repeating of catechisms, so that's the kind of pessimistic <laughs> interpretation I give to this stanza. I don't know. Does that sound right to you? Or Yeah, yeah. That um, sing-songing quality to those two lines, I think, is is continued with this idea of like the, the governors are, are waking up to just play their compulsory game. So this idea that everything is, is sort of like automated and everyone's just going through the motions. So though it's seemingly supposed to be the ethical life, the, the very fact that you're you're a commuter on a train, there's a lack of um, agency maybe inherent in that. People are just being carried along. They're not yep. actually, you know, deciding exactly. things for themselves in the same way that they're maybe, you know, carried into what I would call sin, right? Like adultery or being distracted or, you know, not not concentrating on, on things you actually have to be concentrating on. But this just sort of hapless, self-deluded and, and kind of distracted mode, which is the same one that the governors who are, are controlling the people are also existing in who can release them now who can reach the deaf who can speak for the dumb these are these are maybe the three lines in the in the poem that most challenge my <laughs> my understanding um so this is this is the game that the governors play maybe the like a game of you know with the end of trump's presidency and all the the commutations and uh pardons that are coming down maybe that's why i'm thinking of who can release them now as like a pardoning or commuting sentences or something like what do, what do governors do um who can reach the deaf who can speak for the dumb i suppose i'm thinking of these governors also as as being like european and you know obviously having a, a larger meaning than just like the governor of the state of new york for instance i suppose i don't really know what he's getting at in these three lines 
in my notes, I, I make things red. I make the text red when I still don't feel like I have much understanding. <laughs> so this is one of those parts. I mean, I, I think you're on the right track as far as, you know, and, and I can't add much more than, than that, except to say that he, yeah, he seems to be thinking now of, so you have the people living out their routine and then what do, what do the people who run the government do about that? So that's, this is, we're now looking at political aspirations in relation to the people. We get the nice irony of the fact that they're supposed to run things, but they're helpless and they're engaged in a compulsory game. So in the same way, you know, that the commuters have not really been able to emerge into a true ethical life and make, as you put it, you know, make real decisions. We'd seem to get the same thing with the governors who are supposed to somehow help people do that. So I, I take release them now as release and reach and reach the deaf as having something to do with liberating people, liberating them both materially, right? And politically and spiritually and ethically. The idea seems to be that there is some role for the government in accomplishing these ethical goals with people and becoming, you know, formative for them. That doesn't work. That can't do what it's what it's supposed to do. So overall, very pessimistic stanza. Probably the mm. very, you know, the absolute low point of the poem, although we're gonna get a bit of a turnaround. <laughs> a little bit of hope that of course Auden hated. <laughs> so he comes back in with the eye, which I think is the 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 first time he's used it not not in quotation marks uh, to describe the the thoughts of the commuters. The first time he's he's used the eye since I guess the second mm-hmm. stanza. All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie. Folded lie being paper, like a newspaper, maybe, and also I have the romantic lie in the brain. So so he sort of implies that it's like within the folds of the brain this lie is is deeply lodged i have to admit and i did not get that until i read brodsky and he mentions both those things so i completely missed that and i was like wait what does he mean by folded is he talking about some kind of inherent contradiction here or something that turns back on itself but yeah and yet we know that just a few months before in his poem for for yates he writes you know that poetry makes nothing happen so there's a futility inherent in this too based on what we know about auden and what he thinks about poetry uh doing nothing um so he has he just has his voice the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street the lie of authority so he 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 only has his voice to undo this lie of the sensual man in the street and this the the second lie but maybe they're the same lie the lie of authority so perhaps again it's just this narcissistic self-conception that we're all we're all out for authority we're all out for pleasure we're all out for ourselves we're all islands who can disregard one another and and seek our own pleasure even if that means you know trampling on other countries he sort of reduces everything and you know sort of contracts it and expands it at the same time to to refer to just some guy on the street and also authority with a capital a these skyscrapers the state so there's an interesting synthesis in this stanza of a lot of what's gone on previously in the poem, right? We are revisiting the skyscrapers now, and it's become even more sinister. They grope the sky, and they represent the lie of authority. Earlier on, we had seen them, you know, they're, they're blind 
And by the way, the one of the things I like about the blindness, of course, is that skyscrapers have lots of eyes. They have lots of windows, and yet they're blind. Blindness is also associated with justice, but it's, it can also be associated with failure to see at a uh, at an ethical level even as they proclaim the strength of collective man. So I think, again, it's the way the celebration of human cleverness and ingenuity and also human enlightenment values and and liberal democracy can itself degrade into something authoritarian, right? We celebrate our prowess with those buildings. We feel proud. We feel maybe even nationally proud, and so I think that's the the romantic lie has something to do with that pride in you know romanticism and nation, nationalism are, are they have some relation to each other at least for some critics including including Nietzsche the idea of national glory so we've seen that you know the, this idea of a central man in the street we've seen that before with the people in the bar distracting themselves with their their entertainments and their their pleasures. That sensuality, you might think, might ground them, might bring them back down to earth, but somehow it uh, implicates them in the uh, in this live authority. Perhaps because that's you know, in part because they are uh, surrounded by these concrete visual symbols of of such things. When we get to the point in the stanza where there is no such thing as the state and no one exists alone, what do we make of that contradiction? I'm not sure. I mean, is he saying that the, you know, the social contract that binds us all together is is an illusion or is he saying that that's become invalidated by by people's uh, lack of care for each other if, if they ever had it? it? It seems to me that Auden doesn't have so rosy a, a view of of the past in relation to the present. Um, he, he's not romanticizing the past in any way. So I don't know the, the idea that that states are perhaps just constructs. Um, and that there is nothing binding us together in any kind of literal, physical sense necessarily, but also the idea, of course, that we are communal people, that we're social animals, and that, that we are not capable of being um, total isolationists. I guess that, that word makes me think of maybe this is his call to arms for Americans. I think that's very, very good. So the state can become the the object of glorification, and I've, I've been associating that with nationalism and a lie of authority, when really what he's saying, no one exists alone, hunger allows no choice. Really, he's saying that we are in this state of abject interdependency and the state may be small s, right? Um, we should say, because he's capitalized the s in this, this other glorified state. State small s is a product of that vulnerability and abjectness and interdependence and it's not this thing that people turn it into right um it's not germanness or americanness it's not this uh big thing of which one ought to feel proud it's just something that we have because there's nothing <laughs> there's nothing better right we it's just a way to escape the nasty and brutish and short state of nature and you know we must love one another or die so that's an interesting riposte to the uh second to last stanza right the air bread and the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have not universal love but to be loved alone so we talked a lot about that narcissism so that pitted right in a way it pitted selfishness and survival against love of others and here he's concluding that our survival actually mandates that we truly love one another. So I think it's a strange 
or not strange, but it's a really interesting turn to something positive out of a complete state of abjectness. Our survival's at stake, and so we can learn the lesson of love from the alternative, which is destruction. Yeah. And then in the last stanza, I remember Brodsky saying that last stanza is sort of the deflation maybe that comes after the grandiosity of we must love one another or die. We're defenseless under the night. Our world in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light. There's the Bush reference. Again, I have like what you were describing. I, I also shared in that that first stanza of this, this sort of like aerial or, you know, topographic uh, view mm-hmm. of of the United States. Yeah, that's really important, actually. The bright and darkened lands, they've been transposed, right, into something more hopeful, points of light. Yeah. Flash out wherever the just exchanged their messages. I love that. It makes me really wonder, like, what, okay, so who is, who is Auden calling just then? Like, I would love to get his, his list of people who meet his approval, because so far everybody is like, you know, militant trash. Um. <laughs> yeah, this is part of the problem of the poem, right? So now he's he's singling him and a few others out as the good ones. And that's precisely what the rest of the poem argues against. But then how do you be hopeful if you don't do that? Yeah, then he ends with a with a kind of a prayer that he be one of these just people. But, you know, perhaps he, the message is then that, that he doesn't number himself among them, but that he wishes that he could be, may I be, you know, a light in the, in the darkness or, or whatever the you know, cliched phrases, though I am just made of, of eros and of dust. So I'm, you know, I'm also just the sensual man in the street. I'm just composed of the same metal as, as anyone. And under the, the will of the same, bent to the will of the same forces and, and oppressed by the same states and, and uh, wars and, and everything else that's going on, may I flash out and be, be this point of light. And that's, you know, the, the most he, he does is pray that he can, he can aspire to that. I think in, in the end, he still, he stays humble. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I totally agree with you. I think that his own worries about the poem are not as founded as he thinks they are. Um, I think he does maintain his humility and he does maintain the self-examining and self, the element of the rest of the poem in which culpability is accepted by all in which we're not singling some people out as just and others as bad. It's just that, well, one of the other things I wanted to say here is that this is such a perfect stanza for the ending of the poem because there's a lot of callbacks. It comes full circle and there's a lot of callbacks actually to the first stanza where, you know, we had the radio waves um, obsessing our private lives and um, circulating over the bright and darkened lands And now we get instead points of light and the points of light represent messages. So that's what has replaced the waves. And these are messages uh, that are hopeful, that are representative of justice, which for all the pessimism of the earlier stanzas, right? We do have to admit, yes, we are capable of being good to one another. We are capable of being just. We are capable of being loving and those things, maybe they're rare, but they are things to strive for. And we are not just, you know, composed out of dust, but there's also eros. We've heard a lot about dust in a way, including the conservative dark, which I thought of in relation to the death drive. And I think dust applies here as well. The sort of inertial, not just inanimate component of us, but the inertial component that keeps us doing what we're doing and has us ignore injustice and suffering and has us live according to our pleasures 
and our sensuality as opposed to living according to higher aspirations. And then it gets us confused about when we do think we're reaching for something higher, it, it's status-oriented or it has something to do with the lie of authority or it's it seems to be about love, but it's about pride. It's about our own narcissism. And that's a big problem, right, with the erotic and with love. It's hard to distinguish those two things. When are we genuinely in a loving state? And when are we simply uh, loving others as extensions of our of ourselves? So this invocation of Eros, you know, capital E, it's a counterpoint, right, to the state, capital S, which is sort of the political manifestation of our narcissism. And I suggest the state, not capital S, which requires us to love each other and be just to each other and be good to each other because of our interdependence, you know, is the proper way of thinking about things. And I think that state, non-capitalized S, we might associate with truly with, with Eros, capital E. Out of that, we get an affirming flame out of our negation and despair. So there's this Obviously, this interesting dynamic between eros and dust and between love and narcissism and and all of those other counterparts to each other. And the, the question is how you tip the scales in the direction of eros and how you get um, there's there's two kind of possibilities explored in the poem. One is the way in which our uh, destructiveness can emerge from what seems to be the erotic. And the other is the way in which the truly loving can emerge from our dust-like nature and our negation and uh, and despair. So that's the weird dialectic going on, and that's what makes it the political so difficult, right? Where we tell ourselves we're opposing fascism, and we're telling ourselves we are defending democracy, and really we are we're engaging in our own jingoism and and nationalism and the question is how do we avoid that and and it's difficult and i think so what you know what auden was sensing in his uh hatred of his own, his own poem which is i think is great is the uh it's like he's trying to uh, maybe it's too too neat and ending and too uh too cute in a way too positive in a platitude in this way but it i don't think it is well what's interesting too is that I, I read, maybe I'm wrong, but I read the final stanza as, as almost like a call to arms or something. The dots and the the messages and the mm-hmm. flashing lights are reminding me of like people at a at a, a military uh, base, maybe getting messages in and stuff like that. You know, the idea is that we have to fight this. That's the point too. So though he is down on this kind of nationalism or self-assertion, there is also the need to stop fascism and to assert oneself as a nation in, insofar as you actually do get out there and, and condemn things that are wrong while somehow still acknowledging that you are not perfect. Um, there's a difficult balance, obviously, that needs to be achieved there. The idea of the just and and a just war is important here. Um, you know, standing up for the right things and making those, you know, being active, not just like a commuter on a train. I mean, I suppose one reading of the poem would be, okay, let's let's give up because there's nothing we can do and there's nothing we can fix. And um, we're all so evil in and of ourselves and we're all so quick to point fingers that we should just not point fingers at anyone and, and be sort of incapacitated <laughs> by our own failures. I don't think he's saying that either. To show an affirming flame, w- w- what does that mean? It's, it's got to mean more than just talk. 
I think. Mm. And he, he knows that as a poet, again, that, you know, poetry makes nothing happen, that, that something active does need to happen in, in response to this. Yeah. And, and one can't just be in this neutral air forever. Yeah. I think you're also getting at what he disliked about the poem, which is this idea that, you know, when in the previous stanza, he says, all I have is a voice to undo the folded lie. He comes to reject the idea that poetry is designed for political persuasion and that it can change people and it can change the world. You know, you, you were talking about actually doing things, and I think you're right. I mean, I, I think in a way he thinks this is the wrong place for political advocacy of any kind. And and I think the reason he's wrong about that is because of the self-critical tone of the poem and, and, and humble tone of the poem. I think if you can pull that off, then you can do something political without just being another rank partisan or someone who's pontificating about the world's injustices in a, in a kind of trite way. And he has a point, you know, in his mind poetry and the and the arts in general it's a kind of perilous terrain for them when they get into the uh into the political you know at what point is it just propaganda for instance or at what point is it just an expression of one's own nationalism or one's own partisanship or something like that it's it's always hard to tell when you're doing that and so to do that to your art you, you do want some sort of neutrality right we've talked about this a lot if you're shakespeare you want you don't want to come in with ethical judgments about your villains. You just want to make them what they are in all their, in all their glory. I think that's the problem. Hmm. All right. Is that it? Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for the partial examined life, you're not yet subscribed. You should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, a rating or review would help a lot. You can also find us at subtextpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. To get ad-free episodes and a variety of bonus content, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Bonus content will include our after show, which we're calling Postscript, which consists of an extra 15 minutes of discussion following the regular episode. Sometimes we'll continue talking about the topic for that week. Sometimes we'll discuss what else we've been reading, writing, and thinking about. When the time comes, we'll be responding to listener emails, and sometimes we'll talk a little bit about ourselves. Subscribing will also get you the occasional full bonus show and several prequel episodes that I did with various guests. Send your feedback and episode requests to letters at subtextpodcast.com. You'll also find us on Facebook at Subtext Podcast and on Twitter at Enjoy Subtext. And once again, thank you for listening. Thank you.